This is a talk by Joel titled Meditation 2 Choiceless Awareness, recorded at the 2003 Fall Retreat at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. The Buddhist sage Ashvagosha says, People are tied down by a sense object when they cover it with unreal imaginations. Likewise, they are liberated from it when they see it as it really is. Hence, the sense object itself is not the decisive cause of either bondage or emancipation. It is the presence or absence of imaginations which determine whether attachment takes place or not. So what he's saying is, no phenomena in itself is an obstacle to our realization. No phenomena whatsoever. The obstacle is imagination, ideas, concepts, boundaries, distinctions that the mind thinks up, creates, and superimposes on phenomena that is the problem. An example of what he's talking about. Down in the parking lot, there are some cars. At least your mind thinks there's some cars down in the parking lot. Notice that right away, this is a pure thought. I mean, whether there are any cars or not is irrelevant. Just the naked phenomena that's being experienced is, if you think, yeah, my car's down there, that is a thought. Pure and simple. That's a thought phenomenon. Now, if you went down there and you looked the first thing would happen is you would have a visual phenomena rising in the visual field. And then if you went closer and you reached out your hand and you touched it, there would be a sensation phenomena arising in the sense field. And then maybe uh, if somebody got in and started it, and there'd be sound phenomena. And then if it was a stinky old car like mine with a lot of exhaust, it'd be the smell phenomena arising. <laughs> what the mind does is it sort of lassoes these phenomena, puts a boundary around them, a concept, and calls it car. Now, so far, there is not a problem, actually, even when the mind does that. The mind's supposed to do that. In fact, that's what it's hired to do. The problem is we get confused about that car. We think that car is an object existing out there when it is something in our mind being superimposed on this phenomenon, which itself we think is out there, and that's not even true either. Then it becomes really a problem because not only does this car not truly exist, but then the mind comes along and judges whether it likes it or not. <laughs> and if it's a stinky old car like mine, you know, laden with moss and rusting underneath and so forth, then the mind says, I don't want to be caught dead driving a car like that and have everybody think I'm a loser. <laughs> But if it's a nice, sleek Porsche, then the mind says, I like that car. 
that would be fun to drive and everybody would know how successful I am and just think of all the dates I can get and so forth. <laughs> and then grasping starts. The mind starts scheming, how can I get a car like that? I'll have to borrow some money. Well, that's okay. It's worth it. I'll go into debt. Sure. Whip out your credit card. Let's drive away in that. And so then the object gets seized upon and becomes part of the story of I and we start to think of it in terms of how it enhances us or threatens us and so forth and so on. So this whole problem arises, but it all comes from some simple error that we've made. Really, it is an error in cognition. We've mistaken something imaginary for something real. And that's the crux of the whole thing right there, just as Ashvagosha said. So then the question is, how can we see objects as they really are? This, again, it does not mean that we stop thinking about them and you know, revert to some sort of, I don't know, primitive amoeba, which probably doesn't think about its environment, just responds to it. It's not the thinking about it, it's the taking the thoughts to be real. The, the technical term for that is a reification. We reify our imaginations, our acts of imagination, we should say. That is really the problem. And we do this at a subconscious level. We're not aware we're doing it, and we're not in control of it. It's at the level of dreaming, and it is really the exact same thing that happens when you dream. Your mind creates these environments and these worlds. This becomes clear to us after we wake up, but while we're dreaming, we reify them. It's not clear to us what's going on. And we don't have any sense that we're purposely doing this. Even when we wake up, we don't have a sense that we were purposely creating and reifying these worlds. You see what a deep level this happens on. I'm saying this to give us a sense of, uh, of what we're up against. This isn't some easy thing we can just decide we're not going to do anymore and go home. I wish it was. So how can then we begin to sort of pull this apart, pull apart our imagination from our naked experience of things. And the way we do this is through a practice that we call choiceless awareness. And those of you who have done some Buddhist practice, they call it Vipassana or Vipassana sometimes. Once you've attained some measure of stability and clarity in a concentration practice, then you are ready to move on to this choiceless awareness. You don't have to wait until you're always getting full-blown calm abidings. But you need some measure of stability and clarity. Otherwise, you won't be able to do any choiceless awareness. <clears throat> then we use choiceless awareness, this kind of meditation, to go investigate various aspects of reality. And in this particular case, what we're going to start off with is to see if we can use this choiceless awareness to discriminate between our naked experience of phenomena, sounds, sights, sensations, and our thoughts about the experience. So, for example, the heater was clicking before. It clicks and the mind identifies it as heater just automatically. I mean, it's not something we're even aware of is happening. You know, you smell some garlic and the mind says, oh, it's garlic. Identifies the name with the smell. 
you see a rock on the path. The mind identifies it's a rock. Sometimes, if the phenomena is strange and doesn't automatically fit into our pre-programmed context, we can see the mind actually do that. I've often used the example of a sudden crashing sound outside. For a moment, you don't know what it is, and the attention goes to that. And there might be a lag before you actually identify it. Oh, that was a car wrecking. You might not even be able to identify it until you get up and go to the window and look outside and you see that car wrapped around the lamppost. And then your mind says, oh, that was a car crashing into the lamppost. So you can actually, in, in those very dramatic situations, see the mind struggling to identify this phenomenon, to lasso it, to pull it into its known world so it knows what's going on. But normally it just happens like that. Normally that act of identification with the phenomena and the pre-programmed idea about it is it's like fused together. One little experiment you can do to see how this works, it's an interesting one, it was first suggested by Joseph Goldstein, I think, is on a clear night, you'll have to wait until next summer around here for that, but on a clear night, go up and look at the uh, north part of the sky and you will see the Big Dipper. Does everybody know how to recognize the Big Dipper? It's, what, seven or eight stars. Shaped roughly, kind of abstractly, like a child might draw it in the shape of a dipper that you would dip water out of a bowl or something. That's probably the one constellation in this culture most people can identify if they can't identify anything else. You look up there and you see the Big Dipper. Now, the interesting thing about this is, first of all, you know that the Dipper part of it is imaginary. It just roughly looks like a Dipper. It's really the mind connecting these seven or eight stars together into a configuration and giving it a name and seeing it in a certain way. But this isn't obvious to everybody who looks in the sky and sees the Big Dipper. Other cultures look into the sky and they see the stars that cluster around the pole star as, for instance, a big hunt, the grand hunt. And I've forgotten what it is, a bear and there's a bird in there or something. And this hunt revolves around the pole. They don't see a dipper at all. So this is a, a clue that it's not just obvious to everybody that that's a dipper. It's something that we are projecting up there. But here comes the interesting part of the experiment. Look into the sky and see if you can look at these stars and not see a big dipper. See if you can retract that projection at will. It's very hard to get the mind to not project it up there, to break this fusion of idea and experience. That's what we are after in this kind of meditation. To help us do this, we're going to get very simple. We're not going to stop the mind from identifying things, but we're going to get it to identify things in a much simpler scheme than our normal language uses. We're going to divide all of our experience into six sense fields, six fields of experience. So, we're going to see all the phenomena that arises in the visual field. That's visual phenomena. All the phenomena that arises in the sound field, the auditory field, that's sound phenomena. 
all the phenomena that rises as sensation touches and this and that, that's in the sense field. All the phenomena that rises as smell, well, that's in the smell field and taste in the taste field. That's five. And then thoughts as arising in the mental field. And thought here includes not just formal thought, but images, visions, memories, fantasies, daydreams, anything basically that doesn't fall into one of the other five fields. You can just throw it into the thought field by default. Okay? So, the principle of this choiceless awareness is whatever phenomena arises, we allow the mind to identify it and label it, but we don't label it by the object we think it is or is part of or something. We label it by the field in which it arises. So, for example, you're sitting and meditating. Ooh, 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 ooh. That whistle goes by. Normally, the mind says train whistle. Uh-uh. Sound. Now, if a thought comes, oh, but that's a train. Oh, thought. You see me? And then the thought says, yeah, but it really is a train. Oh, thought. Right? Click, click, click. Sound. Yeah, but it's really a heater. Thought. So we know the difference between the naked experience of the sound of the whistle and the thought that says, oh, that's a whistle. We can separate them out. Is this clear to everybody what we're trying to do here? So the actual choiceless awareness proceeds like this. By the way, we call it choiceless awareness because we are not choosing to focus on a particular object the way we are in concentration. You see what I mean? It's like whatever object, whatever phenomena arises, that's fine. We're not paying special attention to the breath or special attention to a mantra or special attention to anything. No special attention, choiceless awareness. But it grows out of the concentration, or at least it can, and I recommend highly doing that. Because really all meditations grow out of each other. It's not like we do separate kinds of meditations. It's more like a plant, you know, it all grows out of one seed. And then as it grows, you can follow one branch, you can follow another branch or another branch. But it's really all the same thing. And personally, I proceed this way, and I highly recommend it. I run through all the stages of all the meditation practices to get to wherever I'm going, even if I do it very quickly. So if you begin this with your concentration practice, concentrating on your breath or your mantra, whatever your object is, do that. For a while, just until the mind settles down a little bit, becomes a little stable, hopefully a little clarity in there. If you're still fooling around with, you know, finding your nostril or your breath in the abdomen or something, go that far, get down there, get nice, as stable and as clear as you reasonably can. And spot a little laxity there, a little excitement, you know, try to get that guitar string tuned. Then you can start expanding or letting your attention expand into the various fields. And for most people, it's easiest, especially if you're doing the breath, to go from the breath, because that is a sensation, 
into the whole sensation field. You start to become aware of other sensations arising. If you were doing a mantra, I'd still recommend switching to a sensation, the sensory field first, because that's the most, has the feeling of being the most immediate. And after you get used to, oh, see, they're just all these sensations. You're not choosing one to look at or another. You're just allowing them to arise with this stable, clear attention. Oh, now you expand it. Or you can think of it as incorporating in now sound. You can think of it as an orchestra. You know, you start with some instruments. Now you bring in the sound section. Now sounds are arising. Click, click, click. Ooh, ooh, chirp, chirp, chirp. Okay, and then expand it more. Oh, now you're letting attention flow out into the visual field. I wouldn't particularly go try to look in the smell or the taste field unless you happen to be in the kitchen or eating or something like that because generally there isn't much there. But if anything comes along, a smell wafts through here, you can identify that as smell, you know, not as whatever smell it might be, but as just smell. And then finally, because this is the hardest, is thought. Now notice, see, thought is no longer an obstacle or a distraction. We actually want to be able to experience thought nakedly as it is. Everybody following that? No phenomena in any of these fields anymore is a distraction. We do not consider it a distraction at all. Whereas before any phenomena that took you away from your meditation object was a distraction. Now nothing can be a distraction except one thing, and it's not really a thing. Getting wrapped up in a chain of thought is a distraction. Getting wrapped up in a little story, getting carried away in a little story, getting involved in a little wispy drama or just musings. And at first it seems like a subtle difference, but there's a big difference of seeing just thoughts present and actually getting caught up in it. That's something you learn to recognize through the course of the practice. And then you can have the same problems with gross and subtle distraction. You can be, you know, you can be sort of more or less aware of all this phenomena and just somewhat involved with a little musing going on, maybe a little commentary running along. Uh, or you can be totally lost in it, thinking about your vacation or whatever you think about. Well, the same thing. You notice that, you come back. Now, for most people in the beginning, particularly, it's best to come back to your meditation object. It's hard to come back to choiceless awareness if you've been lost immediately. After a while, it gets easy and it can be done. But if you are lost, come back to your meditation object for a few moments. Go back to the breath, go back to the mantra, get yourself stable again, clear, and then you can quite quickly go through these fields if it's comfortable to do so. If you're getting confused and whatnot, move through slowly. You go at your own pace, whatever works for you. Right? And then whatever arises, labor. One other important point here. Don't try to label every single phenomenon that's arising. You'll go crazy. The phenomena arise and pass away faster than you could possibly label them all. So what you are waiting for, and this again is part of the art of learning this, is what is most prominent in consciousness. So that these little raindrops and so forth, do you know what I mean? That might be most prominent for you. 
and then there might be the click, click, click of the heater or something, and then I might go, <coughs> oh, well, that's obvious. That's sound. You see what I mean? I'm not trying to tell you what's going to be most prominent for you. Just because it sounds subtle, you might be sitting there and suddenly you really become aware of the sound of the rain and then that sound, sound. Just whatever presents itself clearly to you, you label it, okay? You can think of this starting from the concentration as now beginning to open that light up from a spotlight into a flood. And in the process of opening it up, so it's going to illuminate the whole stage, the trick is to keep it steady, just like it was steady on the stool. You open it up steady, so you're not moving to this phenomena, to this phenomena. The tension is not out there searching for something to happen. You want to just keep that attention stable, stable, open it up more and more. See, that's why we train in the concentration, so that we can have this nice, open, wide open, stable, clear attention that can recognize the true nature of everything that's arising and not be confused about the difference between what we think about it and what it actually is, and then they can experience that. Okay. Let's take a 10-minute P meditation, then we come back and we will try this. So we're going to do one round of choiceless awareness. And for this round, I will give you a guided meditation through the various fields. I might not go at the pace that you would go, so it's just really to get you used to the order and so forth, and in the future you can determine your own pace. So. So begin by finding your meditation object, your breath or your mantra, and focusing your attention on it.
Now narrow your attention even further onto some spot through which the breath passes. Use introspection to check for the presence of excitement or laxity and adjust your effort accordingly. When your attention has become stable and your awareness clear, let go of your meditation object and gradually allow your attention to expand into the sensation field. Become aware of whatever sensations are arising and passing. Without grasping at any particular one or pushing anyone away, simply label whatever sensation you're experiencing as sensation.
Now, without grasping or pushing anything away, allow your attention to expand into the sound field of awareness. <coughs> you become aware of any sounds that are arising and passing away. We label them sound. gradually expand your attention even more so that flows out into the sight field and without grasping or pushing any sight away label what any sight phenomena presents itself to you as sight A smell or a taste arises in awareness, label it smell or taste. Now expand your attention even more to include the thought field, the mental field of awareness. Become aware of whether thoughts are arising or passing away, whatever images are arising or passing away, whatever memories are arising and passing away.
if no thoughts are arising, generate a thought, the thought of a friend's name, and watch it arise and pass away. Now, without grasping or pushing any phenomena away, allow attention to expand evenly through all the sense fields, the total field of consciousness awareness. And whatever phenomena arise prominently, label them according to the field in which they arise. If any thoughts arise about the phenomena, label them thought. Do not grasp at any phenomena that arises. Do not push away any phenomena that arises. But if your attention gets absorbed in a chain of thoughts, notice that you've been distracted. Cut off that chain of thought. Return attention to your meditation object, your breath or your mantra, and begin again.
if your attention does not become completely absorbed in a chain of thought, but only slightly absorbed in a chain of thought, break off that chain of thought and let your attention flow back out into the total field of consciousness awareness. Vast, open, limitless. In which all phenomena rise and pass away without any obstruction. Whatever phenomena presents itself to you prominently, label it according to the field out of which it arose and to which it returns. The first obstacle that most people encounter in a spiritual path is a lack of inner renunciation. Inner renunciation, just to clarify the term here, is the conviction that happiness, ultimate abiding happiness, cannot be gotten from acquiring anything in this world. Whether they be material things or more abstract, subtle things, fame, fortune, uh, whatever. This will never bring us abiding happiness. But many seekers on a path harbor secret hopes that maybe they actually could get happiness pursuing a job or in their relationships or family or if I just got this house and whatnot. Even though they hear the teachings and even though they uh, assent to the teachings, I mean, the teachings make sense about everything's impermanent, but still they hang on to the secret hope. So for a lot of people, first of all, we don't know that we have these secret hopes, you know, still lingering in there. So it's usually a process of uncovering them. 
But we have to get to some point where we really have this conviction, and that then begins to turn things around. Where you really come to realize, no, you know, I'm never going to be happy in this world. That doesn't mean you have to necessarily change anything. Inner renunciation is not the same as outer renunciation. And it's possible to become an outer renunciate. That is where you physically give up everything. You become a wandering mendicant and so forth. And it's still not have inner renunciation. And that's why Meister Eckhart said, you know, if you renounce the whole world and hang on to yourself, you've renounced nothing. But if you renounced yourself, then you could be the king of the whole world and it would be fine. So outer renunciation can be a very, very powerful practice. Boy, that'll show you your attachments quickly. You know, you try and take that route and they'll just be popping up left and right. It's kind of a, a crash course in detachment. And, um, and it's actually, for most people, it's much easier to become an outer renunciate. Then you are also freed of your obligations to the world and you have all this time to devote to your practice and whatnot. But I don't want to go into a whole digression about the pros and cons of outer renunciation. But everybody needs inner renunciation at a certain point. And this may not come completely until the very final kenosis, as was my case. See, I always secretly hung on to the hope that, well, you know, I'm going to get Samantha. I mean, everything else I could let go. Hollywood, da-da-da-da, everything else, you know. And I didn't even realize that this was an obstacle. And it wasn't until actually she yanked that away from me and I'd given up everything else for that and then I had to face the fact that I was never going to get Samantha. Oh boy, that was a biggie. See, that's what I talked about before about burning your bridges. So there's nothing else. Here's what Alama Gendon Rinpoche says about this. If we think carefully about the unsatisfactory nature of ordinary worldly existence, we will recognize that it is characterized by suffering. We should therefore aim directly at Buddhahood and turn our minds away from worldly values. In this case, there is a firm foundation for our spiritual path, which is why it is said that renunciation is the legs of our meditation with which we walk to full enlightenment. So, in all traditions, the major antidote to this secret hope that we can become happy acquiring worldly things and engaging in worldly pursuits and so forth is to face impermanence, to really come to understand the impermanent nature of this worldly existence. Here's what the Christian mystic Simone Weil says about this. We all know that there is no true good here below that everything that appears to be good in this world is finite, limited, and wears out. Every human being has probably had some lucid moments in his life when he has definitely acknowledged to himself that there is no final good here below. But as soon as we have seen this truth, we cover it up with lies. Men feel that there is a mortal danger in facing this truth for any length of time. That is true. Such knowledge strikes more surely than a sword. It inflicts a death more frightening than that of the body. After a time, it kills everything within us that constitutes our ego. In order to bear it, we have to love truth more than life itself. Those who do this turn away from the fleeting things of time with all their souls. So what she's saying is, if we really face the truth of 
impermanence, it can transform us. We don't have to decide to become inner renunciates. If we really understood the reality of things, we would be. This is the great thing about insights. It's not a question of our will or not. If we open ourselves to truth and allow it to reveal itself to us, it will start to transform us. When she says they turn away from the fleeting things of time with all their souls, again, she does not mean going off into a, a cave. She was actually very active, politically active in life. She was uh, very active in the resistance against the Nazis and, and, uh, and social uh, causes and whatnot. It's the inner renunciation. is simply realizing that I am never going to be happy grasping at all this stuff around me. It's not only that things and the normal gross way we look at them are impermanent, wear out, decay, and so forth. You know, did our pets get old and die and houses, you know, get old. We just had to repaint our house. The paint is chipping away. You know, my car is on its last legs. <laughs> but more than that, and this is what we really want to look at here, more than that is the moment-to-moment impermanence of our naked experience. So, we are going to use choiceless awareness now, this serviceable mind, as the Buddhists call it, to go examine this teaching about the moment-to-moment impermanence of everything. Is it true? Is there anything in our experience, just everyday, ordinary experience, that isn't impermanent, that isn't constantly rising, passing away, constantly rising, passing away? Is there really anything there to grasp onto, to hold onto? Or is it all just arising, collapsing, really like waves in an ocean? It's the insight, the direct experience of that that weans us from this grasping and pushing away. When we actually see for ourselves the futility of it. So that's what we are going to try to do. And let me just say a word about this before we go any farther. Because a lot of people, when they first do this practice, their reaction is uh, either fear or depression. But if you recognize that the fear or the depression doesn't come from the impermanent nature of everything, but from your disappointment that you can't grab onto things, if you let that go, then you can start to experience the flip side, which is the freedom. There is nothing to grasp onto. There is nothing to hold on to. And ultimately, you can see the beauty. The beauty of the world is intrinsically related to its impermanence. It is its impermanence, and it's exactly like music. The beauty of music is in the impermanence of every note in the piece. If any note in the piece was permanent, it would not be music, it would be torture. Take the greatest pieces of music, whatever you like. Beethoven, Mozart, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Sachimo, uh, uh, I don't know, heavy metal, whatever it is you like. And then pick one note and imagine what would happen if you just held that note forever. There's no music. It's the very fact that each note arises and passes that allows the music to be music, allows the music its freedom. So, 
If you find yourself getting depressed, even if you don't see that right away, just remember that. Say, there's more into this practice. Let me have the courage to look deeper. Let me have the courage to go deeper. Let me really see. Let me face reality. This is what it's all about. So many people accuse mystics of not wanting to face reality, of going off and living in caves and contemplating their navels. But when it comes to facing reality, oh no, they don't want to do it. As Simone said. So, we are going to now do the meditation. Let me uh, give you the instruction once more here, remind you of the instruction. We begin by finding our meditation object, our breath or our mantra, focusing attention on it, keeping attention on it until the mind gets stable, attention becomes stable. Don't rush this. Take your time until you really feel a little stability developing, a little clarity. And then you allow your attention to start expanding into the various sense fields. First, the sensation field. We'll spend a little time there watching sensations arise and pass. Into the sound field. The sounds arise and pass. Into the sight field. You get smells arising or tastes arising. Just allow them to arise and pass. Finally, thoughts will be arising. Notice thoughts are arising and passing. There's no grasping, no pushing away at anything. No labeling anymore. We're just simply watching. Unless you really need the label to keep your clarity here about what you're doing. But if you can, abandon the labeling. And you're paying attention in detail to how things arise and pass. And again, don't try to see every little phenomena, the, the most prominent phenomena, a particular sound, how it arises from silence. It was nothing, and now it's a sound, and it's there for a little bit, and then it disappears back into silence, nothing again. Or a sensation that comes and goes. Or a leaf that flutters through your visual field and disappears. Whatever it is. And even if you get caught in a deep, compulsive train of thought, some really compelling little melodrama that totally sweeps you away, when you notice that distraction, let it go, but make that part of your meditation, how it goes to nothing. That's one of the most powerful aspects of this. What you know absorbed you so strongly, what caught your attention, distracted you so strongly is nothing when you see it fade away into nothing. It's just observing here, just completely observing. No judgments about anything. You're letting the practice show you what it has to show you. You're letting the cosmos teach you here, reveal its true nature to you. That's all. Very simple. Okay. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice meditation. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
the impermanence of phenomena is a sign of their emptiness. Emptiness I'm using here as a translation of the Buddhist term shunyata, which means technically their lack of inherent existence. And so the Buddhists don't deny that things appear, but that when we go to examine them, when we go to analyze them, and when we go to look at them very carefully, as this isn't just a head trip, but through our contemplative practice, we don't find what appeared to be there. Uh, the most obvious example, again, is like that car. We just have this idea of a car, but when we go look, we find sights and sounds and smells. We never find anything called a car except for an idea of a car. And then even when we uh, look further, we uh, look into the phenomena and we find that none of these phenomena exist apart from consciousness. They're all actually forms of consciousness. So they have no independent existence either. So they are empty of any inherent existence. So the deeper we go into this practice of impermanence, of studying impermanence, the more and more it becomes obvious that there just isn't anything to grab onto. And I also want to point out that this is not just a Buddhist idea or a Buddhist theory or philosophy. This is something uh, mystics of all traditions have discovered. They don't usually put it quite the same way as the Buddhists do, and they don't usually have the kinds of very precise, really scientific sorts of practices to go investigate it to see. But nevertheless, they've all discovered the same thing. And here's just one example from Meister Eckhart, a Christian mystic. And he says, All things are created from nothing. Therefore, their true origin is nothing. And so far as this noble will inclines toward created things, it flows off with created things toward their nothing. Is it then surprising that I suffer and that I am sad? Truly, God and the whole world make it impossible for a man to find true consolation who seeks his consolation in created things. So what he's saying is, when we grasp at these worldly things and think that they're going to make us happy, we're bound to end up suffering. We're bound to end up sad. It's inevitable. Because there really isn't anything there. This has nothing to do note with being good or bad little boy or girl, or you should or you shouldn't, or anything like that. It is not a moral question, it is an ontological question. It is a question that relates to the nature of reality. So this is what we are trying to get some sense of through this little practice of meditating on or contemplating impermanence, which we've been doing this morning and continue to do today. And this is really just to get us in the frame of mind where we will want to go look for that ultimate reality. Because what mystics, of course, say is there is an ultimate happiness. There is an abiding happiness. There is a somewhat, to use Dr. Wolf's term, avoiding something, a somewhat which is eternal, blissful, doesn't fade away, isn't impermanent, isn't a transitory. And that somewhat is not some object that happens to be your true nature and the true nature of everything. So this is what we are trying to discover. And here's what the Buddha says about someone who can do this. He beholds how the phenomena arise, beholds how they pass away, beholds the arising and the passing away of phenomena. 
Phenomena are there. This clear consciousness is present in him because of his knowledge and mindfulness. And he lives independent, unattached to anything in the world. Thus does the disciple dwell in the contemplation of phenomena. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing meditation at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more meditation teachings and instructions.